That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. I was first introduced to the work of David Cronenberg when I saw Rabid at a theater on Hollywood Boulevard. I was so blown away by it that I went to see it the very next day on a double bill in the Valley with his first feature, Shivers, released in the States at that time as they came from within. To say there's no other filmmaker like him, that he is a true original, is to practice understatement. I first met David when I was doing special publicity on scanners for Avco Embassy, where, among other things, I helped conceive the trailer, did the making of documentary, and put on the world's first David Cronenberg Film Festival on Hollywood Boulevard to promote the film. Our paths have crossed many times over the years, professionally and socially, but once again, it all comes down to Hollywood Boulevard. We gathered there again to talk with a live audience and a guest appearance with the brilliant composer Howard Shore at Beyond Fest at the American Cinematheque. The multiple Oscar-winning Mr. Shore has scored all of David's movies since The Brood, except for The Dead Zone, as well as creating the massive soundtracks for Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings movies, Silence of the Lambs, and many others. It was a very special night, and the chance to talk to David Cronenberg for an hour is a rare and wonderful one, and we will share it with you right after this. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and this is the Postmortem Podcast, and we are live in Hollywood, California, at Beyond Fest at the American Cinematheque. And we have two guests tonight. Our first guest, the amazing, iconic, one-of-a-kind filmmaker, David Cronenberg. And joining us is the multiple Oscar-winning composer of all of David's films since uh, The Brood, except for The Dead Zone, Howard Shore. So, David, this film came after your most commercially successful film. I just want to say I haven't sat in a director's chair for many years. <laughs> this is the first time in about five years. Just standing up. Yeah, they're never very comfortable, really. <laughs> this one's more comfortable than most. It's padded. Yes. Um, this followed your most successful film, commercially successful film, The Fly. 
but I can't imagine it was an easy sell. How did it come together? And, and uh, Because it was an independent film released by a studio, but quite independent. Yeah, um, I remembered nothing. I'm a, I'm a little like a guy named Brett Kavanaugh. Um, it never happened. <laughs> this movie did not happen. <laughs> this is... This is my favorite uh, of your films, and I love all of them. Uh, but this one, there's something really unique about it. Um, it's very difficult to explain what the movie is, but it's based on a true story. And, and how did that become the movie that you made? Uh, I remember just uh, reading some newspaper, and in it there was a, a little article, and it said, the headline was, Twin docks found dead in posh pad. I thought, that's a movie. <laughs> and so I had to um, sort of do some research. And then there was a really brilliant article by Ron Rosenbaum called Dead Ringers, which was in Esquire magazine. And it, it outlined the, the story of, of, of the twins, of these twins. Um, so it's... Of course, this is fictionalized, but it's surprisingly close in many, many ways to the actual story of, the, of those twins. So did you do a lot of heavy research with, uh, on this? And, and I notice it's credited to you and Norman Snyder, who is somebody you have a long history with. How did, how did this come about? How did this screenplay develop? Well, we actually, I actually um, thought maybe I wouldn't be writing the originals, writing the screenplay because there was a lot of material and it was based on real people. And uh, we, I actually went through a, a go-round with a very experienced writer. Uh, and, uh, and it was unusual for me because I had written the, my first five films were original films that I wrote myself. So working with another writer was unusual. And... Uh, uh, he was a, a great guy. He, uh, his name was Andy Lewis, and he had written Clute. And, uh, but he, I realized that he didn't, he didn't actually get it. You know, he, didn't, he didn't really believe the twins were an, an interesting or unusual thing. Uh, he thought they were just ordinary people with nothing going on, and therefore he, he made the, the, the woman of the... The sort of the primary character, but he made her be a not very interesting character. It was very strange, and I realized that I was going to have to do something to get what I had wanted out of it, uh, out of the story. And uh, I went to my friend Norman, who I'd known for many years and was an experienced writer uh, in Toronto, and he he did a first draft, and then I did several drafts after that, and it really was a, a, a real fusion. Of the, of the two of us, our two sensibilities. Well, talking about the sensibilities, the, the work you and Howard Shore did together on this, it started with The Brood. And The Brood, I felt like, was kind of a change in your career in that it became a very... The first two films were brilliant and shocking and unique, but um, were sort of genital invasion of the body snatchers in a way. Um, and in The Brood, it seemed to, be, to get personal. And it was... It seemed to come out of pain and anger. And how do you feel that that was also a transitional period for you? Yeah, I mean, I think most of my films are kind of comedies. But, but I wasn't feeling really 
very funny when I wrote The Brood, <laughs> actually. And so it's my least funny movie with, you know, I think. And, uh, and it's the first movie that I could afford to have an original score written for it. Because for, for Shivers and Rabbit, uh, it was sort of what we call then drop needle music. And it was sort of music that was commercially available. And you just sort of lay tracks and sort of make it fit somehow. So it was very important for me because of my relationship with Howard really began with, we had known each other in Toronto before that, but it was our first sort of uh, working creative uh, uh, collaboration. collaboration. Yeah. Well, it seems there's a very unique musical style that you seem to bring out in, in Howard's work that's sort of a waterfall of dread. I mean, this, this uh, uh, minor key crescendo uh, uh, that that just builds and builds that ending of Dead Ringers. The music takes so long to happen, and it's just mounting in a way that it seems unique to the films that you've done with David. It's actually primarily in a major key. Oh well, I fucked that up. <laughs> Could you um, leave now, Mick? Please. Howard and I will talk together. I think you can handle it, David. You, yeah. you can't always rely on key uh, signatures and music for what, what the piece might sound like. Well, how did the collaboration begin? My first familiarity with, with Howard Shore was Howard Shore and his all-nurse orchestra as the house band on Saturday Night Live. And so how did that transition into your collaboration with David on The Brood, which was... 180 degrees in the opposite direction. I worked in television uh, in, uh, for many years, actually, in, in Canada, in Toronto for CBC. And then uh, Lauren and I went to NBC. And uh, the thing with television is that there's always a hiatus in the summer. So during the summers, I would write. Uh, I worked with David uh, starting in 78 so each summer was the brood, and then seventy nine or eighty was uh, scanners, and then Videodrome. Always done in the summer, and then the films were coming out in the fall. So that allowed me a lot of uh, creative way to write. How did the two of you meet in the first place? Um, we we had friends, mutual friends in Toronto. Um, yeah. And I knew David's movies. Uh, I'm a few years younger than David, so but and I knew his movies uh, from uh, festivals like this one you're having now in, in L.A. Uh, in Toronto, we'd have uh, midnight screenings and underground festivals. And I knew uh, David's films when I was 14, 15. And David had a beautiful uh, motorcycle when he was 17. And I'd see him riding around. I think he had a Ducati. Ducati yeah. 750. And, you, and he would ride around the neighborhood. 90-degree V-twin. He had beautiful leather uh, clothes and a helmet. You know, so, you would see, so, I mean, this was a kid that you noticed. I was 14. He was 60, 17. And I would, you know, it was somebody that you would really pay attention to because you would see him in that motorcycle. And I knew his movies. And then it was a few years. I was studying composition. And um, I wanted, I thought films were uh, a good way to uh, create some of the ideas that I had in music. It was a way to express a lot of ideas that I had and that I could experiment uh, with, with David's uh, work and what I was getting from his 
stories like starting with the brood was a very kind of experimental piece that i wrote for it and it went on into scanners and video drum so david you started out very much as an independent and most of your career has been independent which i think is one of the reasons that you have such a singular vision that you have not had to change that course how did it begin with shivers and then with rabid uh, how did the opportunity to make feature films for theatrical distribution happen for you well i i was um i always thought i'd be a novelist i never thought i'd be a filmmaker and uh um but i was very intrigued by the new york underground you know uh, ed m schwiller and kenneth anger and andy warhol and because it was the 60s, it was, <clears throat> you know, just grab a camera and do your own thing. So I was intrigued about some technical things because I've always been a kind of a tech nerd, sometimes with motorcycles, sometimes with cameras. I, I wanted to figure out how you made the um, the sound synchronize with the, with the picture because they were recorded separately. <coughs> Kids who shoot with their iPhones now don't have that problem. You don't think about it, but it was something then. So I looked up the encyclopedia, you know, camera, lens, and uh, just started to fool around with, with them. And um, and I made some underground films. Those are the films that Howard was talking about that were shown on, you know, sheets put up in, this, in the... Stereo in the, and the Crimes street. of the Future. No, even before Even that. before the yeah. shorts. Then. Well, let's talk then. Give David but, a break. But, <laughs> but ultimately, um, movies weren't really being made in Canada at that point. For, for, for a Canadian, movies were some things that came from somewhere else, like cars. You know, they come from Europe or come from the U.S. There was really only uh, the CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, doing television movies. And then there was a national film board, which primarily did documentaries, but would sometimes do a feature film that was like a documentary for, you know, the, the, the horror of being a farmer on the prairies, for example, or the difficulties of being a fisherman in the Maritimes and stuff like that. And, Sounds very uh, Canadian. Yeah. It was very Canadian and very, you know, sort of the dialogue was pretty restrained, let's say. Uh, yep, looks like it's going to be bad weather today. So when I uh, approached um, this funding body that had been created by the government, it was then called the Canadian Film Development Corporation, the idea was to help use government money to help uh, encourage uh, a a film production uh, industry in Canada. And uh, there was really only one company that was making movies, and that was Cinepix. It was in Montreal, and they, they would make films mostly in French. Well, in fact, not even French, Quebecois, so the Quebec version of French. That's not an insult. It is a different language. And um, they would make kind of softcore, very, I mean, they were very sweet, sort of slightly sex movies with some nudity and stuff, and, and often very political, actually, uh, Canadian political. Um, they were... They were yeah, no, they were political. They really were. They were criticisms of English Canada, basically, <laughs> so, and, and supported the separatist movement. So uh, they were looking for something that they could release in America. And I came to them with my script, uh, Shivers. Right. 
And they saw that it was a unique thing and uh, they, they had never seen anything like that before and they tried to get the government to put money in it and the, gov- the government people read the script and were totally horrified. They did not see you coming. Yes. They did not see me coming and they didn't know what I was. Uh, so, <clears throat> and they really didn't want me to direct it. They, they wanted the script, but I had only done, you know, at that point I had done Stereo on Crimes of the Future. They said, we know you have a really well-defined sexuality. We're just not sure what kind it is, they said. I said, well, Is that you know, a compliment? It was meant kind of as a query, you know, because I was, I was suggesting that maybe I should direct one of their little sex films, you know, because I was ready to try it. And they weren't sure that I would know what to do, I guess. You showed them. I still don't, really, but I'm still trying to figure it out. So um, they, uh, so I thought, and, and so because the government wouldn't put money into it, they said we can't finance it because all of our, our production is, is government finance. So I actually, that was my first trip to L.A., was with Norman Snyder. We came here, it was February, it was snowing, it was horrible in Toronto, and I came here and it was like palm trees, and we rented a red Mustang convertible, and we drove down Hollywood Boulevard, and we were stopped by the police, uh, who got us out of the car and made us lean up against the car. And then we said to them, so why did you stop us? And they said, well, there were a couple of black guys who've been robbing the massage parlors. And I said, we, we refrained from saying that we weren't, we weren't black, you know? I mean, it, it didn't seem like they would respond to the question like that. So that was... Black, but Canadian. Yeah, well... It, it, you know, it was it was an interesting introduction to L.A. and um, and uh, but but it was great because uh, I did have friends here. Uh, Lauren Michaels was here, and uh, and uh, I met Jonathan Demi, and I met Barbara Steele, and it was really great. And what I did was take my script around to American International Pictures and and uh, Roger Corman's company to see if they would be interested and they looked at it and they said yeah i mean this is, we've never seen anything like this script this would be great we'd absolutely would make that this movie so i thought that i was going to have to move to la and uh, i went back to toronto and at that point the canadian film development corporation had caved and decided that yes they would take a chance and produce this strange thing which was called a horror film and so that was why I didn't end up moving to L.A. like my friend Ivan Reitman and my friend Dan- Danny Goldberg and others. Uh, and Lauren Michaels was here at that point as well. So that was, that was how it happened. I, I, the, the budget for the film was $185,000. It made $5 million. I think it was for many years it was the only movie that the, uh, that corporation had invested in that actually made money so that was the beginning of the career that's a long answer to a short question <laughs> but it was also the introduction of of your career uh, as a filmmaker with the success of shivers particularly around the world more so than in the united states and then rabid came along uh shortly thereafter but scanners was the first one that seemed to get attention to you as a filmmaker as well as the movie and it was a big commercial success. Did you feel the difference? 
or was it a grand? Oh yeah, I mean, Scanners was the number one film in in North America. Yeah, and it was like in Variety. It said number one. Scanners was like, where did this film come from? Because also that was a very low budget film from nowhere. I mean, if you were a Hollywood, uh, if you were a Hollywood studio person, you would say, where did this movie come from, and why is it the number one film? film but in Afco America? Embassy at that time was doing pictures with John Carpenter and Joe Dante and and David Cronenberg. And they put a lot into it and, in fact, premiered it across the street at the Hollywood Pacific. Well, it, it, uh, obviously, it takes some muscle and some enthusiasm to, to have a film be a success, yeah. And so the opportunities surely opened up to you at that time. And what were some of the things that came your way before you did your next studio, your first studio picture with The Dead Zone? I know that you have a particular answer in mind, and I'm not sure I can remember. <laughs> I have no answer in mind. yeah. yeah. I don't know. I mean, I can't remember the time. It's all compressed. But at one point, uh, I was asked to direct Top Gun. Right. Um, I like airplanes. You know, I mean, motorcycles, airplanes. You're a tech head. It makes sense. You know, what could could go wrong? (laughs) Um, I was asked to direct Flashdance. That one I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, no. uh, And you said no? Don Steele. For some reason, do you remember that? Does that name ring a bell? She was the real. She, she was. She, she yeah. was. Uh, she was the studio studio head. Yes. And for some reason, she had it in her mind that I was the perfect director for that movie, and I had to tell her that I would, I would destroy that movie if I directed it. <laughs> you would have made it great. Not deliberately. <laughs> just the venereal. Just by being me, I would destroy it. Um, And then it was a big hit and I didn't direct it. And, you know, so I had I had a little bit of a go around with some studio people as a result of the success of the first. Well, Paramount seemed to be very interested in you because that's who ended up doing the dead zone. But that was done independently through Dino or was that an actual. I've never I've never done a direct studio movie. Maybe maybe um, the fly, I would guess, would hmm? be the closest. No, that was no. Brooks film. The fly was through through Mel Brooks. Yeah, yeah. So there was always an entity between uh, between me and the studio. Although I do have many entertaining studio stories I could tell. Well, nonetheless, I would love to hear one. No, I'm not going to tell. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Afterwards, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you didn't feel the studio experience because it it seems like the the direction your the trajectory of your career became much more independent and not really reliant on the studio system. Yeah. That's that's right. Yeah. And, and Howard, for you, working in the independent world as well as you're a multi-Oscar winner for the Lord of the Rings movies and the like, what was that? I imagine the first really big picture you did was um, Silence of the Lambs following uh, David's movies, right? I, I think uh, I think The Fly was... Well, The Fly was... Yeah. Pretty important uh, yeah. film. And it was the first time I used uh, a symphony orchestra. The, the Dead Ringers came after that. And I, that's the London Philharmonic. So we really? we started that relationship with the London Philharmonic, and uh, and Butterfly was done with that orchestra as well. And uh, but I think the Fly for me was rather uh, a huge production u- using that size orchestra. And then it, you're correct, but Silence of the Lambs was years later, five or six years later, right? Yeah. And drew a lot of attention. But um, well, the Fly. 
what was the situation like there? I mean, you were working with Mel Brooks, who is an amazing guy to work with. He's a really much more serious and literate and literary man than I, than I think most people realize because of his his fame in comedy. But uh, did you work with him directly in development? Uh, or were you left to your own devices? I know Chuck Pogue did the original script and then you came in. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was approached by Stuart Kornfeld, who was uh, uh, was working with Mel at the time, and and they they wanted me to direct The Fly. And they had done Elephant Man, sure. And they had done yeah. Elephant Man, and uh, um, I wasn't crazy about the script. There was an interesting rethinking, you know. Up to that point, I had never thought about doing a remake of something. You know, I knew the original uh, Fly. And this was quite different, which, of course, made it more interesting. But it, it had a couple of interesting, uh, you know, the, the idea of, of DNA and chromosomes and, and so on was, was relatively new at that point. And uh, that was used to sort of update the idea of how could this actually physically happen. And that was interesting. But the characters were, you know, it, it wasn't really, it wasn't very interesting to me. And I said... You know, I'd have to, like, I'd throw away the first 17 pages and I would change everything. And they said, okay. <laughs> so, and plus we'll pay you more money than you've ever had before. Um, so I thought, okay, I think I'll do that. And uh, and they they did, like the way that I rewrote it and, and uh, my re- rethinking of it. And... Um, uh, it was a really interesting and good production, and and in terms of the music, I mean Howard and I, really, I, as I recall, we decided that this was an opera, mm. and therefore the music should be operatic. And I remember talking to Mel. He said, "Look, the music, like it's just the guy walking down the street, and the music is like this huge music with huge orchestra and stuff." Mel said to me, what's that all about? And I said, Mel, it's not a guy walking down the street. It's a man about to meet his destiny. (laughs) And he said, oh, yeah, okay. (laughs) Sold. So That was when Jeff Goldblum was walking down the street and he's about to get into that arm wrestling thing. (laughs) All right, snap. What a happy sound. Um, So... Speaking of operatic, The Fly became an actual opera years later. What was that experience like, turning something that had been a cinematic experience into a theatrical, operatic, musical experience? I I always thought of the story, as David mentioned, as an opera, and it kept just rolling around in my consciousness for years. And then uh, after the Rings films, when I had a chance to to actually write an opera, I chose that as a subject. And what was your experience with the opera, David? Well, it was it was really interesting because I had never directed theater at all, much less an opera. Uh, though I was interested in opera, but I had never really thought about directing one. And then, and then again, this was an original opera, and it was written by David Henry Wong, um, who had written *And Butterfly*. And so you had a bit of a connection there. That was yeah. a good connection. And it was the same as the movie, and yet it was different. And the same for Howard. It was not the same music as, as, you know, it was a different entity. 
And uh, directing operas is such a completely different experience. Of course, you have singers who are also maybe actors, maybe not. Um, you have the composer there. You have the conductor, who, who in this case was a very famous uh, conductor. And so you have, it's, it's sort of there are three directors, really, you know, directing different things. Um, and, and, and so it was a really interesting uh, collaboration uh, and, and using lighting in a, a completely different way. It was really a great experience. And, spending, and it was in Paris. It was at Le Châtelet in Paris. So it was a lot of time hanging out in Paris. Not bad. Well, one of, one of the things that, that is most unique about your work is that it's very tech-savvy, and yet it's very emotional. It's very... It has a lot to do with the heart. The Fly, I think, is a perfect example of that. It's a great romance as well, and, and a tragic romance as well as a monster movie. And, and Wait, it's a monster movie? That's what I've heard. <laughs> yeah. Well, I should just mention, too, that uh, one of the things that was first assumed when I was going to direct the Fly opera was that I would want screens and I would want all kinds of tech stuff. And I said, absolutely not. I mean, uh, for me, the interesting thing was to have a real experience, a, a real theater, a theatrical experience, and do it, you know, the way theater and opera are done. You know, not trying to make it more modern with a lot of screens and a lot of digital stuff. Um, so I, I really sort sort of was anti anti tech when I was thinking of the opera. So. There have been a lot of people influenced by your work, and the term, the term Cronenbergian has come into existence. The first time I ever saw a film that I felt was really inspired by your work was the uh, Dutch director Dick Moss made a movie called The Lift, and it, it very it felt very Cronenbergian in the text sense and and in that dark uh, dark imagination sense. Um, have you run into movies where you see them and, and you feel that there is definitely somebody who has witnessed your signature work? And yeah, I think everybody on the planet has been influenced, really. Every movie. <laughs> well, there's something really iconoclastic about your work. Uh, you've never claimed to be a cineast and you're not really a, a student of film and film history. You don't go and see everything. You're more influenced by life and literature, it seems to me, than by film. Yeah. Well, uh, I think my early formation as an artist was more through literature because, as I said, I, I thought I'd be a novelist and I never thought I'd be a, a filmmaker, though I did see a lot of film. Uh, first as a kid, you know, just seeing cowboy movies and stuff, and then as gradually it became apparent that because really in the 60s there was such a thing as the art film with a capital A and that was people like Fellini and Bergman and Kurosawa and Truffaut and Godard and these are foreign filmmakers from around the world. Were they influences to you? Yeah, they were. They, 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 They were the films that made me realize that film was in fact an art film. You have to art form. You have to remember that in the beginning uh Movies were despised. You know, they were for shopkeep, shop girls, and they were for you know maids and lower class people would go to see the movies. Whereas, if you were an elite, uh, uh, you know, person of, of any substance, you would see that you would go to the theater and you go to opera. You would not go to movies. And uh, I mean, not that that was 
what people thought when I was a kid, but it was mostly just entertainment, you know, cowboy movies, sword fighting movies, we call them. And then I, I gradually realized that cinema, I mean, actually, people like Bergman went through that himself. He, it took him a long time to accept that his life as a filmmaker really was the, the life of an artist because he thought also he would have to write novels to be really credible as, a, as an artist. <clears throat> so, um, so yeah, the, those films were important to me, but I, I, I wasn't obsessive about it. I mean, it wasn't like I had to see everything. When I was making my first horror films, I did want to see everything that was happening in horror because, because of the special effects and just to get a, a sense of the tone and what was being done. You know, I, I, I understood that I was becoming part of the genre and and I wanted to know what was going on but I wasn't really obsessive about it in in the sense of feeling that I had to see absolutely everything I've never thought of you as a genre filmmaker in that you were trying to make movies to fit into a genre but as someone who had a distinctive vision who made the stories that he came up with into films and other people would fit them into a genre and, uh, you know, the, the trajectory of your career seems to prove that you've gone into a broader sense where you don't think of yourself as a horror filmmaker. Yeah. Well, you know, it took me 10 years to get Dead Ringers made. I mean, you were asking me how I got it made, and that's a long story, some of which I, I actually have forgotten. But um, uh, it did take 10 years. So if I had managed to make it 10 years earlier than 1988, I would have made it in 1978. It would have been right in the middle of my so-called you know, horror film period, and it just—it really was a film I wanted to make. I don't—I doubt that it would have been as good as it ended up being because ten more years of experience experience for me was good. But um, so I was never—I was willing even then to make a movie like this, which is not really—it's hard to pin it down. What genre is it really? Yeah, it's hard to even describe it to anyone because it's experiential. And and what were the conversations? Let's talk specifically about Dead Ringers uh, musically. How? What were the conversations that you had that led to what we ended up seeing and hearing? Uh, well, we always do uh, a spotting session once David has a cut of the film. Um, but I usually start uh, writing uh, much earlier on with the script. I like to work with the words and the ideas inherent. We've done a lot of literary adaptions as well, like Crash and uh, Naked Lunch. And so I always go back to the original uh, novels of Burroughs or, and uh, do a lot of research before I start composing. David's films for a musician has been a wonderful world of inventive, inventiveness for music. That was really my interest in it. So over the 15 films that I've uh, written uh, music for, for David's films, it's just opened up a vast world of music and, and also technology, because I, I was interested in the technology as well. So it gave me access to the recording studio and different techniques. Some of them are fairly experimental, like starting in, from films of scanners, uh, which led into later films like Crash and, uh, you know, where electronics were used and early sampling techniques were used in uh, far back as Videodrome. So would David give you guidance uh, or would he say, let's see what you got? Would you? I think it's mostly through the script. Mostly through, and then I would, I felt a very intuitive 
connection. That's what I'm, you know, I'm trying to say as a musician to a filmmaker allowed me a lot of creativity, a lot of freedom. So it wasn't so verbal a discussion going on. It was more, uh, you know, very egalitarian type of production. And David would do that, I think, with all of the film makers that he worked with, cinematographer, Peter Shisiski, and and Ron uh, Ron Sanders, the editor, and Carol Spirit, production designer, you know, allowing them to create their best work based on the ideas that he was putting forth. And then he would do some tweaking and some some suggesting. And and they usually came a little later on. It might happen even in the final mix. I can remember Mm -hmm. in, uh, I think, in maybe in... The final mix of of Naked Lunch, where we were moving things around together, working together, and we were overlapping uh, parts of the score with another piece. Um, so it's been a pretty free flowing uh, creative process. Um, I just want to say that um, I remember uh, Howard sent me a, a cassette of um, the music for Dead Ringers, which he had done with synth- synthesizer, I think, at that point, because just experimenting. To do the remember, themes and things. You know. I remember listening to it in my car as I was driving out to my place in the country, and uh, I was just overwhelmed by it. It was just so beautiful and so emotionally right. Uh, and these are nonverbal things. I mean, I still think it's one of the most beautiful movie scores ever written, frankly. And um, it, it uh, you know, you can only go so far verbally talking about music, which is so visceral and so emotional, you know. And uh, um, and that it was, you know, when it works, and it has with us, it's just, it's just, uh, it's a fantastic, amazing, quite magical kind of thing. Have you ever played a musical instrument? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, my mother was a pianist, and I, I, I played classical guitar from the, age of 11 to 19 and I played the piano and yeah sure so yeah well you started out wanting or thinking you would be an author and that happened about four years ago uh, with Consumed and tell me about the experience of of writing strictly for the page rather than as a blueprint for a hundred other people to work on well it's a completely completely different thing and yet uh, you know I had really when I started to write Consumed, when I finally finished it and published it, I thought, well, okay, it's 50 years later than I thought it would be. Literally, <laughs> 50 years later. Uh, of course, it wouldn't have been this, the same book then, but um, so better late than never, maybe. But um, as I was writing it, to my surprise, it was more like directing than it was like writing a screenplay. You know, as you know, screenwriting is a really strange hybrid kind of writing where the actual words are actually not important unless they are dialogue. That's the only thing that actually gets up on the screen directly. The rest is kind of something else. Very strange uh, hybrid form of writing, whereas a novel is you are doing the casting, you're doing the lighting, you're doing the costumes, you're doing the locations. I thought, wow, this is like directing. I was surprised by that. And it's also uh, able to express the internal. Richard Matheson once told me that fiction is internal and film is external. Well, that's a simple formula, but there's a lot of truth in it because even a very bad writer can say, as he walked down the street, he was thinking about his girlfriend, you know, 
well, how do you film that? You can't really. You can't. You, so you have to use other things to convey something like that. Uh, maybe you have to have him talk to a friend about how he's thinking about his girlfriend. But it, it, it's, so it's immediately quite a different um, approach to thought and emotion than it is in a movie. And what about acting? <laughs> you have done mostly cameo parts, but in Nightbreed, you had a major role, that Clive Barker. You've actually acted in a couple of things for me. And uh, uh, tell me about the experience of being on the other side of the camera. Well, you were very cruel. Yeah, always. <laughs> you deserve it. I still have the, the emotional scars from those. <laughs> and I'm proud of those. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, um, the, the, the most recent thing I did was Alias Grace, where I had mutton chops. You know, I sort of let them do the acting, really. And you did a comb over on, on Happy Town, the thing we did, yes. Yeah, yes. which was your idea. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, um, acting is a whole other thing. It's a really interesting thing for a director to do. I mean, at one point, I remember early on, people said, And so did your acting experience make you more sympathetic to actors? And I said, Absolutely not. <laughs> the contrary. <laughs> but in truth, it did. Because. You're just in a completely different space as an actor. And when I'm acting, I'm not trying to be a director. I mean, it's actually quite nice to give up that control. You're really just responsible for your character. And you can't really, you, you can't really interfere. You know, it just won't work. You have to. So it's, it puts you in a, a different, very interesting space to, to act. And I think uh, it's actually for a director, I think it's probably a really great thing to, to do. To, to enhance your understanding of what actors are and what they go through. As a filmmaker who has often worked in the extreme, um, did you find becoming a parent had any effect on what you were making for the screen? No. <laughs> Excellent. At that point, let's ask for some questions from the audience because I know this is a rare opportunity to be able to talk to David. Here's uh, one right here. Any chance of a Dead Ringers opera? <laughs> if you can find me those identical singers. <laughs> Over here. Okay, one at, a, one at a time. The first question is, is it true that you were asked to direct Return of the Jedi? Of course, at that time, it would have been Revenge of the Jedi. Yes, um, I was in my kitchen, and I got a phone call. And who I don't know who he said this. Whoever it was said he was from with Lucas Films, and um, they were inquiring if um, would I be interested in possibly directing Revenge of the Jedi. And I said, you know, I'm not used to doing other people's material. <laughs> and then there was this click. <laughs> that was it. So, uh, I think you were being punked. I'm not sure. No, I think it was for real, and I think I just didn't exactly show the enthusiasm they were hoping for. And the other question was for Howard about the experience of adapting music for the Rings trilogy. The score took over uh, almost four years, three, three years and nine months. And... Um, it's all of it's all out now uh, in vinyl. Actually, if you're interested in in vinyl, 
but I just um, remastered uh, all, all of the original, uh, uh, the uh, complete recordings in vinyl. So the music tells its story. And if in, in, in those record, and in, in Doug, Doug Adams wrote a, a book about Lord, if you're interested in Lord of the Rings, Doug Adams wrote a wonderful book about it called The Music of the Lord of the Rings Films. And you can find out all your answers to everything about the themes and the leitmotifs and the recording process and the use of Tolkien's languages. It's very extensive. I recommend it. It's, it's, it's kind of interesting for me to see Howard's work in other people's movies um, and how different it is uh, because my Howard and I have a, a particular way of working which is not the way um, other directors work. For example, just the relationship between the music and the dialogue is really interesting. Because do you put music over the dialogue? Does it make the dialogue harder to hear? What instruments can you not use when you're putting music over dialogue because it interferes with the frequencies of yeah. of the speech and so on? And I noticed that in, uh, Peter Jackson likes like wall-to-wall music. Like there's always music. The music is used entirely differently. Yeah, completely different In Lord of the Rings, yeah. And actually... Um, I hadn't used music in a film like I did with Lord of the Rings, like with Fellowship of the Ring, until uh, that was in uh, 2000. So all those years that we had worked together, I made so much effort to stay out of the way of the dialogue and also the narrative. I was working a lot around the fringes, the edge of the frame, and creating a subtext, and you really... This was really almost a culmination of those ideas with Stan Ringers. But then when I started working with Peter Jackson and I tried that technique, I think in the very first meeting I had with him, he just looked at me like, what you? you know, he, he had like a really complex story to tell that had a lot of characters and cultures. You know, it's considered one of the most complex fantasy worlds ever created. So the music had to be used for clarity for part of the narratives to understand that this sword that came from this culture, I mean, it's just completely different from any use of the music that we didn't want to explain. Yeah. We didn't want to. Yeah, no, for us, the, the music was like another character. It was, uh, exactly. we, didn't, we didn't use it to underscore what was already there, for example. You're also on a very human level and a very limited number of characters in your films as well. Uh, I don't think of it as limited. <laughs> Compared I think to of the it battalion. is more like selective <laughs> or curated, as they <laughs> say today. <laughs> Other questions? One back here. The question was to David about uh, working for Clive Barker in Nightbreed and how that character came about and the casting came about. Yeah, I mean, I, I had known Clive. I forget how we met, and uh, and he decided that I should would would be good for the that role of you know i don't want to spoil it for you but i kill everybody um <laughs> but forget i said that and um uh i was really i mean in a way that was the longest role i ever played because i spent three months in london doing that so that was me on location as an actor which was really an interesting experience in itself and uh to show you how much i became an actor see this is as soon as I'm an actor, I'm an actor. So I did 
actorish things. Like, for example, the first scene we shot was me getting killed. And so I said to Clive, Clive, how do I know how to die when I haven't lived yet? And his answer was just, you know, get out there and when he stabs you, like, react, okay? <laughs> so, you know, that was me trying to be a serious actor and then, you know. <laughs> and here we are. Um, but it was a lot of fun. Actually, I, I got along great with Clive and uh, there was, a, you know, it was a big production for him and it got bigger and bigger and there were money problems and, and scheduling problems and all kinds of things. But we, we you know, we, it still was, for me, it was, I happily didn't have to worry about any of that. Well, speaking of those problems, as someone who does work independently, does it get easier? Is everyone a train being pushed up a hill? Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's gotten worse, actually. It's really hard to get a movie made. Um, my son is going through it. He's directed a movie called Antiviral, and he's written several... Uh, oh, thank you. I'll let him know. Um, and he's he's got three scripts, you know, and, and they're on the verge. And then, you know, you've got the actor, but then the actor has some, some other film, and then the money leaves, and then the money comes back. And it's just... It's like that. I mean, Viggo Mortensen is in Toronto right now, I think, doing location scouting for a movie that he's written and wants and will direct. And he's going through the same thing as, as my son. I mean, it's exactly and as I have experienced myself. So it's, this is not, you know, this is not doing uh, a $200 million studio movie, which I know from my friend Guillermo del Toro is also not easy and is a nightmare. You know, it's just a different level of nightmare. Uh, it's really rough, really difficult. And films are being consumed in so many different ways now. You are uh, a rare member of the directing squad who is, doesn't find the sanctity of the cinema any longer. Um, you seem to be embracing streaming uh, and all forms of film consumption, the modern film consumption. Well, I'm watching Lawrence of Arabia on my watch right now. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed. Oh, wait. Whoa, look at that camel. <laughs> yeah, I was on a panel in Venice with Spike Lee, and, and we were talking about the future of cinema. And uh, I think in, in, one, in Hollywood Reporter, one of them said that Cronenberg sort of turns out to be a shill for Netflix. He, man <laughs> he mentioned it 50 times. And I, but I was saying, you know, you can't really discuss the future of cinema without talking about streaming services and, and in particular Netflix, uh, because I think that is the future of cinema and the idea that you must be in a theater with a, uh, with a lot of other people. That, no, I mean, that's, that is one experience and it is an experience, but it's not the only experience and it's not the only way to engage with cinema. And we know that. I mean, people are watching movies on their phones and on their iPads and stuff all the time and on the back of airplane seats and you name it. <laughs> and to me, this is all good. I mean, uh, yes, it's a different experience, but it's a still an experience. And, uh, and, and in terms of financing, well, look at Netflix. When they release a movie, it's instantly in one day released in 190 countries. Now, that is unprecedented. And they do it without... Uh, touring the actors and the director without doing almost any advertising. And, and it's, it's, it's an extremely different 
uh, paradigm of, of movie making and movie releasing. Quite interesting and very disruptive. I mean, uh, it, it, it is sort of like what Tesla did with the electric car, you know. It's like suddenly somebody just saw this and did it, and it's, it's, it's eye-opening. So um, movies are changing. I mean, they always have. It's, it's still cinema, but it's, 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 it's not the old cinema. And you're moving into different formats as well. Uh, Consumed is being turned into a TV series. Can you talk a little about that? Well, we, we'll see. I mean, it's, it's in early stages. It's, uh, there are a couple of showrunners uh, working with AMC who are interested in it, and they, it's, a, it's advancing. It is a really uh, unusual experience for me because I've written this novel, and I really have to just let it go. I, I said I don't want to direct it and, and uh, don't want to produce it. I don't want to write it. I just want to be the novelist who gets paid so much money. <laughs> I don't know if that part's going to happen. But <clears throat> so they, I just actually met them here uh, yesterday. No, was it today? Yeah, it was today. today. Uh, the two, the, the the two people who are show running that, who have written uh, a pilot for it and have written a kind of a bible for it, and. Uh, it's becoming another thing, you know. But I mean, I, that I, it's like it's almost like being an actor for me. I have to let go. I have to let go of <laughs> of it and let them do it. Is this the first experience you've had of originating material and then letting other people take yeah, it? It is. I've never had that experience before. And no. how do you like it? Well, I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we have time I'll for one or know. two more questions before we got to wrap it up. Yeah, back here. Oh, the lead characters uh, in a lot of your movies seem to follow sort of an Icarus trajectory. Is that something you intend? Um, probably. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I really, I mean, I'm sure... High, high, catch fire and crash. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's always, I mean, you really, you know, you want a character who is, in, is trying to do something. And it's always interesting when they fail. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. There are more movies to show. We'll take one more question, and then we got to thank uh, Mr. Cronenberg, Mr. Shore, for uh, joining us tonight, right here in the middle. Okay, the question is about the casting of Jeremy Irons in, in Dead Ringers, and, and we said it before, but within two minutes, it's, you completely forget that it's one actor playing both parts. Yes, the technology. We had to invent some technology to make that movie happen that had not existed before. And uh, Panavision actually included some of the things we invented in their package after we made that movie that, so that you could synchronize shots and motion control and stuff like that. Uh, it's a whole different thing now. But, yeah, that was uh, quite a, an epic uh, getting... Um, that was one of the reasons it took 10 years to get Dead Ringers made because I... And it's a unique for me. Um, I approached 20 of the most famous... American and Canadian actors to do Dead Ringers and uh, they all said no and it w and you would think that an actor would love to play twins but they were they were afraid of it they were afraid of that and they were also afraid of the gynecology they were they were just i mean especially the Italian Americans <laughs> You know, they, I always got, couldn't they be lawyers? <laughs> I said, you think that's better? <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I, I, just think of some famous Italian-American actors 
I'm not mentioning any names. They kind of live in New York. Um, but not just, I mean, a lot of really lovely, good actors. Uh, they, they could not either get past the gynecology or they could not get past a particular aspect, which was that these twins were real. It wasn't like one was a killer and the other one was innocent. You know, it wasn't like the evil twin and the good twin. These were complex uh, human beings. And and that intimidated a lot of actors. And the first actor, so when I finally decided, okay, it's not going to be a North American actor, uh, the first actor who was not North American was Jeremy Irons. And he was not afraid of either of those things. But it was still a problem because... <clears throat> uh, he he I had to fly back and forth to London a few times to, to sort of seduce him again. When when the money fell out and it suddenly looked like it wasn't going to happen, this is a classic independent film kind of thing. Uh, and then suddenly he got cold feet and he wasn't sure that we would have the resources to do it. And then I had to go back and convince him that we did. And uh, so it took quite a while uh, to get Jeremy to do it. But he was, the, as I say, the first... Uh, non-North American actor that I approached. Oh, it's a fearless performance. You're a fearless filmmaker. And thank you so much, David Cronenberg, Howard Shore, Beyond Fest, and everyone here. Thank you. Hey, everyone. It's Joe Russo, mixed postmortem producing partner, here to tell you about a new movie just released on digital, video on demand, iTunes, and more, the horror movie Realms. When a bank robbery goes awry, two thieves find themselves hiding out in a mansion that holds supernatural consequences. Want to see Realms for free? Our friends at Paramount have given us a limited number of Fandango Now promo codes to give out to our listeners based in the U.S. Find the trailer for the movie on our Twitter page, at PostmortemMG, and tweet us to enter. And if you're looking for more horror podcasts to help make your October spooky, make sure to check out our sister shows in the Blumhouse Podcast Network, Shockwaves, Fear Initiative, and Attack of the Queer Wolf. Until the next Postmortem, they'll give you the horror fix you're craving. If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, you can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram on PostmortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.